Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last week we looked at the great questions that God asked people throughout the Bible and zeroed in on one that I suggested was maybe the greatest question of all asked by Jesus of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? The greatest because of the answer requires of each of us to get off the fence and declare who he is to us. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Today we're gonna stay on that theme a bit, but turn it around and look at some of the ensuing questions the disciples ask of Jesus. The first one is about a mountaintop experience. Many important things happen on mountains in the Bible. The most dramatic example, of course, is the appearance of God on Mount Sinai, first to Moses and then later to the nation when the law is given. On Mount Carmel, on the coast of the Mediterranean, God answered Elijah's prayer by sending fire to consume the sacrifice and even the altar itself, defeating the claim of the false prophets. After that, God appeared to Elijah on Mount Sinai as well, as he had to Moses. Back in July, we saw how how Jesus was taken to a high mountaintop and showed the kingdoms of the world that Satan would give him if he would bow down and worship him. And of course, uh, we spent time also in the Sermon on the Mount. And now another important mountaintop experience. It happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. But to this day, there's no clarity exactly which mountain that is. We can be assured, though, that it was indeed a never-to-be-forgotten mountaintop experience for the three disciples who are with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. We don't know the mountain, but we do know a little more information from Luke's account that Jesus had gone up the mountain to pray. And while praying, he was changed. He was transfigured. Elsewhere in the Bible, this Greek word is translated as transformed transfigured, transformed, and refers always to an inner change. That This time, though, it seems that there was an outer glow to Jesus, and that's why uh, transfigure is the word that's used. He shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. There's no explanation given as to why it was these two and not others from the Old Testament. We can, however, quite easily understand what these two represent. Moses was the great lawgiver, and Elijah was recognized as the prophet among prophets. So together we have the law and the prophets. The two chief divisions or or categories in the Old Testament, suggesting that what they each stood for was now being combined and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus had already commented on this himself back in chapter five. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now this is sort of the embodiment of the fulfillment on the Mount of Transfiguration. In other words, in this glorious moment, right before their eyes, Peter, James, and John witnessed the culmination of the entire Old Testament revelation and the fulfillment of everything that these two men taught and represent. This moment particularly wasn't lost on Peter, who has reacquired the foot and mouth disease that he's had in the past. And he gets so caught up in this great moment that he basically doesn't want it to end. And so he blurts out how good this moment is. 
and, and can we just like stop the world from spinning now and we can all just camp out here in the mountains and hey, with Elijah here, we don't even have to worry about starting a fire. Oh, groan, yeah, go ahead. Four quick learnings from this. First, Peter is right to mark the moment, but he's got the wrong idea. He's got the wrong reason. Yes, it's a culmination of the Old Testament, but that's the key. It's the Old Testament. The New Testament is being written as he speaks, and it has not yet reached its culmination. Jesus is now stressing to his disciples over and over again through these chapters, his mission is not yet complete. He's resolutely beginning this, this journey towards uh, Jerusalem, to, towards his death and resurrection. We're going to see in just a few chapters his triumphant entry into there. Jesus is stressing this over and over now. He wants them to get it, that he's going to die and he's going to rise again. Secondly, Peter wants to camp out in the moment for a while, but there's a huge three-word phrase that follows from God that we cannot miss in this experience, and we often do, and it's listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Peter blurts out a plan, but it's Peter's plan, isn't it? There is a time to speak, but let's remember we must always listen to Jesus first. For as disciples, we're following him, not the other way around. Number three, they could see and hear two men talking with Jesus. They were not dead. They were real. It was Elijah and it was Moses. They were as real to them in that moment as Jesus was. They recognized all three. There is a heaven and there is eternal life and we will be able to recognize one another just as the disciples had no problem recognizing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Is that comforting to you? In heaven, we will know each other in a real sense of community like we can only dream of, like we can only imagine on this side of the veil. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward, frankly, to a place where I'll be able to remember everyone's name. Wouldn't that be great, guys? Remember everyone's name, in perfect memory. And I'll never have to say buddy or pal or, hey, you. We'll just know a name. It'll just come to us each and every moment. Ah, what will that be like? And it's not just heroes of the faith. What will it be like to get to know someone in history, to go for a hike with C.S. Lewis, to, to have tea with Corey Ten Boom, to have a walk with D.L. Moody and just see the evangelistic urge and, and fervor in him just kind of blowing out of him, to, to pray with George Mueller, or to go for a jog with Jim Elliott. Heaven is going to be a place of unbelievable reunion for families and friends, loved ones and spouses, and we will recognize each other. Hallelujah. Like the guy who was finally reunited with his wife, who had died quite a number of years before him. She was showing him around heaven, and she said, isn't it wonderful? And he said, yeah, and I would have been here a whole lot sooner too if you hadn't fed me all of that oat bran for all those years. I love this thought, fourthly. Moses had a dream of making it into the promised land, but he died in the desert. He was, he was denied that in that moment. But do you see sort of God's faithfulness in here? Yeah, he gets to see it. He never did get to see it physically then, but now he does. Now he does. Eventually, he's there. He's gazing on it. He's on this mountain, and he's in the promised land. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell face down ground on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I love that little phrase at the end. I think it's maybe something that we need to remember when we get up. We see only Jesus. At first glance, this looks like the same old, oh, here they go again, disciples, terrified yet. When are they ever going to learn? But I actually think there has been some progression here. There's at least two things we can note in growth in the disciples. First, I would have been on the ground the moment I witnessed the transfiguration. How about you? The appearance of Moses and Elijah, are you kidding me? I'm on my face. But that's not when the three disciples were overcome. They were watching all this. It was when they heard God's voice, and then they hit the floor. Right now, because that's the God of the universe speaking, and like so many before them, they're undone before him in reverence, in awe, and yeah, fear, even just from hearing his voice. And then Jesus says, get up. And if I could paraphrase the thought here, it's there will be time for campfires and there will be time for relishing the moment forever and ever in heaven. But there's a mission still before us. Don't be afraid. Be reverent, be obedient, be faithful, and also be going. We have something here at Southland called Hearing God. It's now being included in a bigger offering called The Way. Hear me in this. It is so good, it is so right that we as his sheep learn to hear his voice and his voice above all others. Those who have given their lives and love to Jesus as Savior, however, need not fear that God will say to them what God will say to them because Jesus' death on the cross has eliminated, cleansed us of the incriminating evidence. But let's not ever, let's not ever, ever take hearing him speak into our lives for granted. Or just another ho-hum experience, God spoke to me again. Every single time, in our hearts at the very least, we should be hitting the floor in reverence and awe. God, the mighty God, God cares for me, God loves me, and in all his holiness and might and power, he spoke to me. And now comes the question which takes us to the second, second progression that the disciples are going through, and it's sort of the second question that we're dealing with. They ask him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Because there was an Old Testament reference, a prophecy that Elijah would return before the Messiah. We'll look at Jesus' answer in a second, but I want you to notice the subtle progress the disciples have made here. They've arrived for the most part at the conclusion, it's almost taken for granted now, that Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah. They're not questioning like, wait a minute, you can't be the Messiah because Elijah hasn't come. No, they're going, you're the Messiah, but what happened to Elijah? Where's Elijah in all this? It's no longer, who are you? Who is this guy? But what happened to that bit about Elijah? Do you see why we say making disciples is part of our God-given mission here? Making. It's a process. You don't get there on the overnight express. All through chapters 14 through 17, there's a flow that goes like this. Jesus teaches the disciples. They learn, but then they blunder badly. Two steps forward, one step back. Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter asks to join him, and he does, but then he takes his eyes off Jesus. They start to get glimmers of Jesus as God, but then they worry about offending the Pharisees. 
Jesus teaches what comes from inside makes us unclean, but then the disciples try to turn away an unclean, on the outside, Gentile woman seeking healing for her daughter. There's revelation that Jesus is the Messiah and God, but the next moment, they're denying what he's telling them about his death and resurrection. And it's so not over yet. Understanding followed by misunderstanding progress, followed by regress, that is the pattern. It's also, frankly, our pattern too, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I marvel at the patience of Jesus who picks up again and again. He picks the disciples up. He continues to pick us up again and again when we fall badly and he puts us back in the way. After all of that, the answer is very straightforward. Jesus responds by confirming that the prophecy is correct and that the role of Elijah in preparing the way for the Messiah has already been fulfilled by John the Baptist, which they were told completely understand. Right on the heels then of this wonderful mountaintop experience, as the four of them come down, they're met by a man who approaches Jesus and kneels before him and says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. At first glance, it seems surprising at this stage of Jesus' ministry that the nine other disciples who weren't up on the mountain were unable to heal the boy. Jesus had already granted them authority to cast out, cast out evil spirits earlier, and they had already done so. They would already done some healings, but here they fail. Jesus steps in and expresses some, some truth and disappointment with the unbelieving generation of which the disciples are a part. He rebukes the demon and the boy is healed at that moment. The obvious question is exactly where the disciples go and it's today's question number two. Why couldn't we do that? And the answer straight up, Jesus replies, because you have a little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will. Do you have any mountains in your life today? Are you facing something that looks impossible? A problem too big to even begin to work at? Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move that mountain. Jesus says it doesn't take that much faith, actually. It's not a matter of quantity because even faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. The disciples must have had at least that much faith in some sense in order to try to heal the boy in the first place. Jesus is not referring to their inadequate amount of faith. He's saying that their faith is lacking in something. It's short of something. See, faith isn't something in and of itself. Have you thought about this? Faith in and of itself is just but nothing. It's faith in something. It's faith in something that makes all the difference. It's what is that something? Everybody has faith. I can tell you stories from my family who are involved in a cult about all their faith. Everybody has faith. You have faith. You had faith this morning in the company that made your cereal, that they did it and did it properly, and it's safe for you to eat. You have faith every time you get on the road. Why do you have faith every time you get out on the road? Whether you like it or not, it's faith both in your ability and in the others who are coming at you on the road. That takes a lot of faith sometimes. You had faith when you sat down in your chair that it wouldn't collapse. Everybody has faith. You can have a huge amount of faith, but if it's in yourself or, frankly, in anything other than God, 
it amounts to nothing of consequence. In Jesus' terms, it's too small. It's deficient. The disciples had reduced healing to faith in themselves and a formula instead of faith in Jesus. What he's teaching the disciples and us is the amount of faith is almost irrelevant. It's the object of our faith that matters because even mustard seed's faith in Jesus is enough. It's where we place our faith, not how much or how little we have. You don't need a lot of faith to be a disciple. You just need a little faith and a great big God to get big results. Don't misplace your faith. Place it on Jesus and in Jesus, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus and the disciples travel back to Capernaum, and there we encounter question number three of our study this week. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Yes, yes, after all this, after all these chapters, the disciples are arguing about which one of them would be the greatest in heaven. Wouldn't you have been just a little bit discouraged if you'd been Jesus at this point? You're leading these guys to change the world, and now you're, they're lagging five steps behind you, saying, I'm better than you are. No, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm sure he could hear them as they walked down the road. Uh, guys, I'm right here, right? He's got to be shaking his head. But rather than chastise them, he once again, in patience, seizes the opportunity to teach them through even their arguments, even their struggles about what it really means to be great. In this instance, and there were several instances where he had to talk to them about what's great. In this instance, he brought a child into their midst and said, here's an object lesson that all you, need, you guys need to get. Whoever humbles himself like this child, that's the one who's going to be the greatest. Jesus didn't say, totally set aside your feelings of wanting to make a difference in this world. Totally set aside your desires for greatness. Not at all. Instead, he taught them in this very simple picture, let humility manage your determination. Let humility oversee all the desires you have to make a difference. That's what makes for greatness. Jesus started his relationship with his own disciples that way. He didn't come and say, follow me and you'll be able to get really close to me. I mean, what a privilege. We're going to have great Bible studies, great relationships. It's, it's going to be super. No, he didn't say that at all. He came up to these guys and he appealed to their desire to have meaning and purpose, their ambition to do great things. You follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you the kind of people that can change the world. In doing that, they got close to him. And in getting close to him, they became more and more like him. Disciples. Let humility, humility manage your ambitions. The problem is not that we're ambitious. The problem is that we allow our pride to drive us rather than letting humility keep it in its proper perspective. They're two very different things. If your pride is driving you forward, you become an ugly, self-serving person, honestly. If your humility is first, all the gifts that God has given you and all the abilities and all the dreams start to come forth in your life in appropriate ways. That's a key to great relationships, and Jesus' object lesson in this was a child. He said, whoever humbles himself like this child, he wants to remind us of two things. First, that humility means dependence. That's what humility is all about, dependence upon God, not on yourself. 
Can there be a better object lesson of this than a child? Children depend on their parents. Most children don't suffer over asking their parents for things. They don't think for months or days or weeks, should I ask my parents this or shouldn't I? Will it depress them or discourage them if I ask them? No, they just ask. They don't think about it at all. They just see us as friendly ATM machines, honestly. They don't mind coming and asking. That's because they know they depend on us as parents. We're to have that same kind of relationship with God. I'm here to tell you, ask. Depend on God. Jesus had a child in the midst of them and said, I want you to depend on me like a child depends on its parents. That kind of faith. Don't be afraid to ask me for anything. If you ask for the wrong thing, just like when your child asks for the wrong thing, God teaches and guides and helps us to grow through that as well. But when we're afraid to ask for anything, when we're afraid to depend on him, there's no growth. There's no developing relationship. So we need to be like a child in our relationship with God. I've got to let you in on the other thing that Jesus said. He said to the disciples, unless you change. Ooh, humility is one thing. Change, unless you change. Humility doesn't just mean dependence. Humility also means the willingness to change. We're to become like children. How do you, have you noticed how quickly children can change? One minute they're standing on the top of the hill declaring themselves king of the world, and the next they're humbly coming to you with a scraped knee, Right? One day you can see two children fighting each other tooth and nail, and the next they're having the greatest time together. Do the changes of life ever humble you? When you exalt yourself, ambition makes you like a tiger, demanding, I want my way and I want it now. When you humble yourself, ambition makes you more like a child, depending, simple childlike faith in God. So the question in your life and in your relationships, what's the picture? What's the picture for you? How do you try to get your way? How do you try to get things done in your life? Is it the picture of a tiger? Are you steamrolling? Are you roaring and clawing your way to the top? Is that the way you're trying to get there? Or is the picture more like dependence? And finally, the last question of the day. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter has a point, doesn't he? Forgiveness is rarely a one-time shot, a one-time event. Forgiveness goes on and on and on. How often do I have to keep releasing my right to get even? How often do I have to keep blessing them when they do evil? It's a question that's been asked for 2,000 years. Peter asks it of Jesus. Have you noticed it's easier to forgive a one-time offense than it is a continuous irritation? Every one of us have an irritating source in our lives, a heavenly sandpaper, if you will. No, don't look at them right now. Not cool. Peter thinks he's, he's being real magnanimous here. He thinks he's being over-the-top generous. He thinks he's going to kind of go way beyond the limit here. How many times he has to forgive someone? Seven times. He's expecting Jesus to be astounded at the depth of his willingness to forgive. Whoa, props, Peter. Nice. 
No, Jesus' law, see, Jewish law required that you only had to forgive a person three times. He's like doubled it and added one for the road. Seven times. The Lord says, Peter, do you believe not seven times, but 77 times? This wasn't meant to be even limited to that. It's a form of expression. Nobody's actually going to count 76, 77. Too bad, you're out of luck. You're 78. No, it was meant to be a form of expression in which he's saying there's no limit, Peter, to the amount that you need to forgive people. When one of you is offended by the other, the response is not retaliation or revenge, but forgiveness. On her golden wedding anniversary, our grandmother revealed the secret of her long and happy marriage. On my wedding day, she said, I decided to choose 10 of my husband's faults, which, for the sake of our marriage, I would overlook, she explained. Sat there for a while, you can imagine everybody's like, uh-huh. I guess asked her, and then, well, can you name some of those 10? To tell the truth, she replied, I never did get around to listing them, but whenever my husband did something that made me hopping mad, I would say to myself, lucky for him, that's one of the 10. (laughs) Jesus is pointing out here that if you're keeping score, it's not really forgiveness at all. You haven't really forgiven in the first place, let alone the 77th time. What is the secret of genuine forgiveness? It's remembering how much you've been forgiven, how much I've been forgiven. That's the secret to forgiveness. Remember how much we've been forgiven by God. Remember, remember, remember. I remember what it cost Jesus Christ to forgive me. All the things I've done. I'm not spotless. I'm not blameless. I've hurt a lot of people in my life, and so have you. Remember the Lord forgave you, we're told, so you must, must forgive others. If you're a follower of Christ, this isn't optional. God has forgiven you, so he expects you to forgive those who have hurt you. Jesus launches immediately into a story with a message or a parable, as they were then known, to drive home how serious this is. And he starts like right at the crisis moment. The king decides to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who have borrowed money from him over the years. It turns out that one servant that's before him has been steadily doing so to the point that he has built up a huge debt, like more than you can even imagine. We're not told why he did or what he used the money for, but the debt has grown to an astronomical amount of millions of dollars. In the original Greek, Jesus takes the largest number in their language and pluralizes it, like zillion, and then puts an S on the end. Zillions, right? Like, you can't even begin to quantify this amount. He pluralizes it to express the size of the debt that this guy owes, something that would take in the neighborhood of 200,000 years for him to repay at the average pay of a, of a servant in those days. 200,000 years. The point is, there's no possibility that this guy will ever be able to pay it back. It becomes obvious that he also hasn't squirreled it all away somewhere or even invested it so as to be able to kind of, whoops, and give it back. It's gone. He's blown the whole wad. There's no need for discussion. The debt is unpayable. The king knows it, so does the servant. He has no excuses, no assets, no rich uncle, no hope. He's finished. 
The law was quite clear in these matters. A debt was a serious thing, and the master orders that the servant and his family be sold into slavery. And the law said that it was not just for this generation, but for all the generations to come until the debt is fully paid. A slave was worth maybe $2,000 in our money back then, so the sale of his whole family would not pay for one-tenth of one percent of the debt. Do you see how many generations this could go? Now, to, the, to this point in Jesus' story, there has been no surprises. Standard operating procedure, yeah, that's the way it works, right out of the book. His listeners would not be at least and the least bit surprised at anything that's taken place so far, no matter how we would look at it and say, whoa, that's pretty harsh. It was the way it was, and they all accepted it. But now the story goes off script. As they come to drag the servant away, in a moment of complete desperation, the servant does the only thing left open to him. He reasons to himself, I'm sure, <laughs> my you know, generations were all going to be sold or in jail or whatever. What have I got to lose? I'm out of options. I'm out of hope. So in front of everyone, he falls to his knees before his master, and he begs, be patient with me, and I will pay it all. I just need some time. I just need some grace in this. No one present sees this going anywhere. Not only was it embarrassing to watch, but it had never been done before. But it's, it's there the surprise comes in. If there's surprise at this begging man sort of stooping to this, they're in for a much bigger surprise now because then the master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. You're not going to be a slave. You're not going to lose your family. But he goes even beyond that. It's and then some portion here. He doesn't just rescind the sentence. He forgives the unpayable debt. Wipes it clean. Gone. Now, it's crucial that you understand this in order to get the ramifications of this story. In order to understand what Jesus is saying about God here. When the king forgave the debt, the debt didn't just disappear. It didn't just vanish. Who absorbed the debt? The king. Who's taken the loss? The king. It cost him more than could be counted. It was zillions it cost him to say those words. This is no casual thing. Yeah, no big deal. There's no record of the servant's reaction. I have to think he was speechless in shock. What? He was about to lose everything and suddenly through nothing of his own doing. In fact, in spite of his doings, he finds himself forgiven and free. Now at this point, we need to step back from the story and reflect. Now the master, the king in this story, he, of course, is representing or stands for God. The other main character, the servant, who's that? Who's that representing? Anybody want to guess? <laughs> you and I. That's who it's representing. It's us. Jesus says that we, each of us, have accumulated a huge astronomical moral debt before a just and holy God. And we've been adding to it incrementally for years. That's our condition. We are this servant. 
Every time that we were less than honest, every time we did something wrong, every time we didn't do something right, every time we misspoke, every time we didn't speak when we should have, every time we were unloving to someone, every time we should have acted in love but didn't, every time we refused to be grateful, every time we gossiped, every selfish act, every impure thought or deed, every judgmental attitude, every time we took a little grudge and nursed it and nursed it, we were adding to our mountain of moral debt. We're all in this same boat. We're all this servant. If you will be honest, as you examine your life, you know the truth about you. We've accumulated a mountain of moral debt before a just and holy God. All of us have. And the Bible promises that one day we too will stand before this holy and just king to settle our account with him and face the fact that we owe an unpayable debt to a just and holy God and we don't have nor ever will have the resources to pay it back. Probably not even one-tenth of one percent. We cannot earn our way into God's good grace. Not by going to church not by giving lots of money, not by doing good deeds. It's an unpayable debt. On our own, we don't make the cut, but the Bible says there is another way. We can throw ourselves on the mercy of the master. The Bible says that God looked at you and me and was so moved with compassion that he sent his son Jesus to live on earth to teach us how to live and then to die on the cross the death that we deserved, the debt that we could never pay. On the cross, our king absorbed the loss so that we could be set free. The cross is the place where God's unswerving commitment to justice and his undying love meet and are satisfied. The cross is the place where human beings can be freed from every sin, every wrong decision. The cross is the place where you can say yes to God's offer of life and forgiveness. Now this servant has received grace. But that's not the end of the story. Oh, I wish it was. This is a three-parter. The servant has been let off the hook. Those of you who are fishermen, it's a live release. Got hooked, but took the hook out. Back in the water, back to freedom, back to life as just as wonderful as it ever was. He's been let off the hook. He owes his life, his freedom, his family, his possessions, everything that he has and is, he owes to the grace of his master. He doesn't have to repay a cent. Everybody listening to this story wants to know how did this change the servant? Immediately on his way out, he comes upon another servant who owes him a small debt. It's like three months' wages in those days. The fellow also doesn't have the money. The first servant, the forgiven servant, grabs this guy by the throat and demands, pay up! And as part of Jesus' mastery of storytelling, the second servant uses exactly the same actions and exactly the same words used by this first servant just moments ago He falls to his knees and begs. Be patient with me and I will pay it. Same word, same action. The great difference, of course, is that this time it's a doable debt. It's payable. It can be done. But he refuses the first servant even to acknowledge this and certainly doesn't even consider forgiving the debt. Are you kidding me? 
Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Some of you have been used and abused. You know what this feels like. I know what it feels like. We just want the other person to pay. When the hurt is deep and the hurt is unfair, you want the other person to get hurt back. You want them to know the pain that they've inflicted on you. Some of you have been cheated or betrayed or deeply wounded. Some of you have been the recipient of grossly unfair treatment. You've been hurt and it's deep and it's personal and yes, it's totally unfair. Someone has run up a moral debt with you and you're saying right now, yeah, but if I forgive them, I know what that means. It means I'm going to have to swallow the debt and not hurt them back, not get even, let it go. And you're absolutely right. That's exactly what it means. If you forgive someone, you pay a high cost. In fact, there's only one thing in the world that I know of that costs more than forgiving someone. You know what it is? It's not forgiving someone. Because non-forgiveness costs you your heart and your soul. It costs a lot to forgive. But to not forgive costs you who you are. This servant has done the unthinkable. He receives this huge forgiveness of his debt willingly, but he refuses to extend it to another. Eventually, word gets back to the king who has the servant brought back a second time. But now it's a different kind of story this time around. This time, just the king speaks. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? You thought that grace meant that I would let you get away with whatever you wanted to and free you to abuse whomever you wanted. You thought you could be the same hurtful, self-centered, arrogant, unforgiving, ungracious person that you were before. You have proven, therefore, by your actions that you don't want what I really am offering here. You were shown forgiveness, but you wouldn't give it. You were offered grace, but you wouldn't extend it. You were showered with love, but you refused to live in it and share it. I offered you the miracle of forgiveness, the chance to live in a world of grace, but you can't receive it for yourself and then deny it to others. You can't accept forgiveness, but refuse to give it to others. It's a package deal. It has to get into your very soul and transform you, and you wouldn't let it. Your fruit reveals what's really inside. You have rejected what I have to give. You have made your choice, and I have nothing left to offer. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which we know was impossible. And now you must choose. Vengeance or mercy, prison or freedom, hatred or grace, life or death, it's up to you. So please, please choose to forgive. For God's sake, put the burden down because it will kill your very soul. Let it go, choose life. And what other lessons can we learn of forgiveness from this? Just quickly, three more. The Bible says that real forgiveness is unconditional. It's not something you can earn, deserve, or buy. When you tell a person, I will forgive you if, that's not forgiveness. You're bargaining. You're, you're, you're not entering into forgiveness. Genuine forgiveness is unconditional. It's offered even if it's not asked for. When Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Nobody's asking. He just grants it. 
Certainly nobody deserved it. Nobody had bargained for it. It was an unconditional offer of pardon. Genuine forgiveness is unconditional. It did cause pain, and you don't need to minimize it because that's not part of forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying, yes, it hurt. Yes, it caused pain in life, but I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to hold it against you. You need to understand that there's a difference between being wronged and being wounded. Wounds are unintentional. Wrongs are intentional. You're wounded all the time by people accidentally. Do people say things that hurt you that they never meant to say? Sure. Do people do things that hurt you that they didn't mean to do? Sure. Those do not require forgiveness. What they require is acceptance, recognizing that we live in a fallen world. People are going to hurt you many times unintentionally. And real forgiveness is relinquishing our right to get even. What's the typical reaction to hurt? Get even, get back. Don't get mad, get even, we hear, right? It's our way of life. There are lots of ways to do that now. Figures, right, over the internet. You can, for $25, send them flowers, dead flowers, of course, or not so fresh fruit. You can have that done. An ad says, get even with your enemies. Send them a cow chip by mail. 1-800-COW-CHIP, not kidding. Here are the titles of some books you can buy. Get Even, The Complete Book of Dirty Tricks. Techniques of Revenge. Techniques of Harassment. Make Them Pay is another title. Vigilante's Bible. And then finally, your revenge is in the mail. Only one problem with this kind of stuff. It doesn't work. Revenge never releases resentment. It actually just builds it. Even after you've given or you've gotten revenge on someone, you're still full of resentment. It doesn't go away. You've bought into the lie. There's only one antidote to getting over hurt. God says it's forgiveness. And this is the heart of real forgiveness. You don't seek revenge. Never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God, for he has said that he will repay those who deserve it. We always want justice for everybody else and forgiveness for ourselves, let's be honest. When it comes to somebody else, it's not fair. But we don't want God to be fair with us. We want God to be gracious to us. But the Bible does say this. God has the last word, always has the last word. One day God is going to settle the score. One day God will right the wrong. One day God is going to balance the ledger. So you let God settle the score. He can do it perfectly. You don't have a hope. You forgive so there can be peace in your heart and you can get on with your life and you leave the justice part to God. The Bible says you must relinquish your right to get even and you must also respond to evil with good. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. That's part of forgiveness. You return good for evil. How do you know when you're genuinely forgiven somebody? Well, when you can pray for God to bless them. We do that in set free, don't we? When you start seeing their hurt, hurt people hurt people. When people are hurting inside, they take it out on others. That parent who hurt you a lot, they were hurting a lot. They were hurting in all kinds of ways. When you learn to forgive, you cannot rely on seeing your own hurt and then multiplying it. But you can rely on it to help you see other people's hurt. Then you understand why they acted in evil or selfish or hurtful or abusive ways. You can pray for them and pray for God to bless them, relinquish your right to get even, respond to evil with good. There's only one possible way to do that. You have to be filled with the love of God. There is no other way because love keeps no record of wrong. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we keep coming back to Jesus. There's no way we can have that kind of love on our own. Only the love of God inside of us, filling us, can give us that kind of love. We live for you, Jesus. 
Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.